Moving up, we're going to go to a more modern movie. We're going to go 40 years uh, past 1927 to 1967. 17th place, uh, The Graduate. This is one of my all-time favorite films. It's Mike Nichols directing Dustin Hoffman as the character Benjamin Braddock, who is confused and alienated and stuck in a fishbowl like so many of his peers. It only gets worse when he sinks into an affair with Mrs. Robinson and then falls in love with her daughter, Elaine. Oh, boy. This is the film that when we did the Stump Jeff and Stump Todd. Yes. Plastics. Yeah, the whole plastics. And it's a it's a classic film line because this this film lands exactly when, as that description said, much of the youth of America feels alienated because we've had the the 50s, the idyllic time of the 50s post-war. Now they're beginning to look and say the world isn't perfect. This isn't a perfect situation. I don't know where I'm going. So Benjamin Braddock is that character. He is that person for that era when they're like, I don't know what I want. And so what happens is you can look at this as Mrs. Robinson is a, as a product of the era gone by who tries to corrupt the future yeah. by bringing him in, yet he still finds love in all this. Now, why is this film here? I think that besides the fact that it spoke so directly to a generation, it, it has a number of things where we talk about film language. Um, it has beautiful transitions. That was also something, if I'm going to digress, Mamma Mia does well, too. And mm. what I mean by transition is, you know, we accept in film that if it's gone from a scene where characters are talking and it lingers for a moment and then it cuts to an outside shot, we know that we've moved ahead in time. Or if it dissolves, if it, it softly becomes right. one other image, it's a passage of time. The Graduate has a number of sequences where Benjamin is laying in his, his parents' pool and he goes off of the uh, the he's he, I'm sorry he's in the water and he pulls himself up on a flotation device that's in the pool and it hard cuts to him pulling himself up on Mrs. Robinson and these what are called seamless transitions where the action feels like you're doing one thing but it becomes something else and puts us in other things are great examples of wonderful filmmaking, but really the absolute crucial thing that happened in this film was the use of Simon Garfunkel's songs. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Robinson obviously is, is, is goes hand in hand with the, uh, the, one of the title characters, but the sound of silence mm-hmm. became a song for a generation. And it, it literally is the, the opening shots of the film as he's coming along from the airport and it's, Hello, darkness, my old friend. And mm-hmm. we know right away that he's in a place that isn't good. And it it was one of the great examples of a soundtrack being intercut almost, dare I say, as a musical. Right. Because the thoughts of the characters are pertained within the, the lyrics of the song. Right. This film, I, I, I can never, ever, ever grow tired of watching it. If someone said you have to watch it once a day, I'd be like, okay, I love this film. It's written beautifully and acted beautifully. So you made me think of two things while you were talking. One, one thing we'll do when we're here, and I'll, I'll pass this along to the kind listener. Watch On the Waterfront, then watch The General. And I think my what I'm trying to communicate as far as editing will be more apparent. And, and I'll look forward to the discussion that we'll have when you're here, Todd, because as you were talking about those 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 key elements in The Graduate as far as how they were transitioning you know, and making scenes, the general, which I guess 1927 editing equipment back then, probably not what it was in 1954, but but was successful. I felt like every cut, every edit in the general was had a purpose. Whereas, and I'm not trying to beat up on the waterfront too bad, but I'm saying that's one of the things that caught my eye because it's funny because I watched those in in two. You know, I watched uh, them in order, so I watched it on the waterfront, and then I watched the general. And it was one of the things that made me really enjoy is the, the way that it's put together. The story is not lost through the editing. Um, the second thing is uh, the probably the most comedic use, uh, use of uh, that song, um, The Sound of Silence, is, uh, uh, is, it, uh, is it old school where Will Ferrell at the kids' party falls into the pool? It's the famous scene where... Um, 
he the, he's talking to the guy that brings the pony to the kids party and he's like you know he's like, I was like dude you got a dart in your neck do you remember that scene I, i'm gonna be honest with you i've never seen that so movie. will ferrell gets hit with the the dart he shoots himself in the neck with the dart accidentally and then it's a scene where he's making his his way through the kids partying and and it's all slow he's making these noises and he's right. you see it from his perspective he's pushing kids out of the way and he falls into the pool and then there's this underwater shot of him slowly drifting to the bottom and that song starts up uh check that out on youtube it's it's funny well, him being underwater like that also is evocative of one of the images that benjamin's parents give right. him scuba gear and he sits on the bottom of the pool there you go so. and, and, and and without knowing that that maybe that was a a tribute to uh that altogether. but it's it's a great scene yeah um i don't have any real uh, it's been a long time since i've seen this movie so i i don't have any anything really to bring bring to the table um but I, I think you did a good job of, of summing it up, and 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 um, you know maybe I'll check it out again. Uh, the Graduate, nineteen sixty seven, in seventeenth place. We move now on. Uh, we'll go in the AV time machine back to nineteen fifty. Sixteenth is the spot. Sunset Boulevard is the movie. So we're getting into territory where so many of these I'm going to say again and again are, are my favorite films, um, and Billy Wilder is probably amongst my favorite directors billy walder influenced so many people uh with his films like some like it hot uh the apartment double indemnity sunset boulevard is just about in my opinion the perfect film noir slash hollywood film it tells the story of a struggling writer who i'm actually as soon as i said that i don't like the description i have in front of me so let me find another one it's a screenwriter is hired to rework a faded faded silent film star script only to find himself developing a dangerous relationship this film look and i'm gonna i'm going to spoil something but it, <laughs> but, it, but it is spoiled for you within the first two minutes of the film this film opens with that character dead floating in a pool yes that alone is we, we talked about voiceovers earlier this alone is a brilliant use of voiceover because the character's dead we are hearing from a dead man floating face down in a pool, and it's a beautiful shot, especially for this era, the way they work it. Yeah. The the strobes of people taking pictures around him. It this film, from a technical standpoint, is constructed so beautifully. Wil Wilder was one he he wrote much of his own work along with Charles Brackett understood so many genres again how many things have I've, I've named that he did comedy that he did drama that he did uh, film noir so here's where this gets really interesting this was his condemnation of what hollywood did to its own stars and holds true today how many times do we have massive stars that they just eventually cast aside so gloria swanson the star of this film was a silent actress herself they went through a number of things. Mae West was originally supposed to be in this, but she was cast as Norma Desmond, a former silent era star. Well, the stars back then, it, it is such a weird conversation to have because they didn't have to act from a standpoint of being believable with their dialogue. They had to act with their faces. And what you said about Keaton, Keaton was a master at that. Charlie Chaplin was a master at that. But you did have people like Gloria Swanson that would tend to just... Uh, over overdo it they had their eyes were constantly doing it. and so she's constantly in this film overacting well what's interesting is that her butler is played by eric von stronheim who was one of her directors in the early era so he even ends up being a, a former director in this he truly was her director from the early era there are so many things where it's doing that about what we do what we consume and what we cast aside because even the title character who's floating in the pool she does the same thing with him. We've taken her and cast her aside. She used him and cast him aside. It is, I know Jeff is not a fan of this film. And <laughs> I'm saying it right away. This is one where I'm going to have to find a way to teach Jeff. No, 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 no. This is absolute perfection. Now, are, is it, does it have some time where it has that dialogue that you, uh, dialogue delivery that you don't care for? Sure. Yeah. But, 
when I talk about technical execution and its flawlessness, characters do things and react perfectly. This is so tragic that at the end, when she asks Mr. DeMille or tells Mr. DeMille she's ready for a close-up, it says of our society that the delusion we create is that all I need to do is get back to the top and all will be okay. Yeah. For this era to have something like that, especially a big director to say, look at what you're doing to the people in our business. Wilder was, he was afraid of nothing. He could do everything. He, now he had flops. Everybody had flops. Everybody takes a chance and it doesn't work. There's a reason so many of his films are on this list. This, there are countless films. Uh, Robert Altman's The Player, which I don't know. Did you ever see that, Jeff? That was uh, the prequel, pre prequel to um, Color of Money, right? No. No. What oh, was God. what was what was the original one that had? Um, I thought it was the player. There is a movie I, I know. Sometimes, what's that? The Hustler. Yes, The Hustler. I'm sorry, that's what I got it confused with. I don't wow. think I've seen The Player, but 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 it's again another uh, problem with the boy who cried wolf. He thought I was trying <laughs> trying to be funny there, but no, I actually was thinking of The Hustler. But it, it is so many films have gone from what is created here, which is let's take a smart somewhat satirical edge to it somewhat there's a slice of satire in this but look at what we do by loving what we do if that makes sense at all yeah i i will i will tell you that this is another film that i share with my wife that we will watch anytime it's on and to me it's one of those it is truly if we talk about food we talk about the foods that we taste and we don't like this is the food that every time you eat it, it's a perfect cake. And suddenly the next time you notice the deep chocolate taste and the next time it's some kind of cream, there's always another layer of something in this film to love. I'll leave it at that. Well executed. Um, well said. And, and you're right. I, uh, this movie also is the second movie in the AFI top 100 where pop did a spoiler for me. Um, where I think I communicated to him that I was watching this, and then he came up with the line, well, I'm ready for my close-up. And I was like, ah. Oh. And I love his defense, which is, well, everybody knows. You know, like, well, I, I just have never seen it. And love my father. I'm giving him a hard time. But um, so I didn't know that Sunset Boulevard was, I knew of the line. I didn't know the origin. Um, Yeah, I'll throw my hat in the ring here. Um, The uneducated film person appreciates the underwater shot um appreciates um the cinematography there's some great shots in it but to me this is um i was very intrigued when it started i like how um the the financial guys i can't remember the exact word but basically bill collectors that are trying to get after him for his car Mm -hmm. They like go on this like real dangerous uh, car ride, you know, car chase thing. I mean, I, it was cracking. So the, the financials are they're, they're coming after me. It was great. And then, of course, the way he stumbles upon the mansion is he has a flat tire and he and he sees. Um, uh, and I'm going to test your movie knowledge in a second. Here. He finds what looks to be like an abandoned mansion, uh, which I guess was common back in that day because some of the silent era, you know, actors and actresses it kind of secluded back. Uh, but it reminded me of the scene, um, and I'll tell you the storyline, and, and, and it's I think it's a well-known book, but it starred, uh, okay, here we go. Um, I, now I can't think of his name, but the storyline is um, this young boy, I think it's in somewhere in Southern, somewhere, stumbles upon a mansion, and he meets a, a little girl, and then the girl's mother turns out to be this really rich woman, and she hires the boy to play with, with the girl. And then the boy grows up and becomes an artist and runs into her again. And it's got De Niro in it, who plays in Khan, who the boy helps escape. Right, am I ringing any bells with you? No. I it, Hold on. You know, immediately you were saying that kind of sounded like great expectations. That's it. Charles Dickens. That's it. Is it? And it has, oh, the blonde. So many people have been in a version of that. I didn't know De Niro was in a version of that. Yes, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Let me do the search here because there's some really good people uh, that are in there. But yes. Is that the Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow version? Yes, yes. 
great story. Um, but anyway, so it kind of mirrored that, that he, you know, finds this abandoned mansion and goes in and it just happens to be, um, they think he's there to deliver a coffin for a dog. And he actually starts help helping her uh, rewrite the script. All and, of- and, and there's an interesting thing there too, that he's so hungry to have a chance. Ultimately, you know, he's a, he's a guy that needs a chance that he's willing to do this, that he almost sells his soul for it. So once again, Wilder's making a condemnation on what we will do yeah. to find success. There's, there's so many places where he's pointing fingers and at, at that era in film, what, what was expected out of film was give me a chance to forget. Right. We talk all the time that a great movie is whenever, you know, uh, here, 107 degree heat, my electric bill is going to be 300 bucks. <laughs> Where am I going to get that money? I'm going to go to the movies and I'm going to forget for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But what Wilder would do is he would help you forget, but he would also say something to you. Right. And I, I really do think that he helped to contribute to that language that you could say something while entertaining. Right. So all the way from that point to where he finds the um, mansion, I'm in 100%. It's what what drew me out of this film was the ongoing drama of this actress. And in some ways for me, that was more harmful than it was enjoyable. There's also some scenes where he starts working with a younger screenwriter and they're working on film and that that would kind of I would kind of get back into it and see where where that was going to go. But I found and it just could be my palette, my film palette, um, that the scenes with her were 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 a bit gnawing uh, after a while. All that being said, um, a very uh, uh, a movie that, that 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 has a lot to say does stand the test of time um, and can mirror a lot of what's happening or has happened throughout the history of film when it comes to fame. You know, you and I are getting to ages now where, you know, you 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 see some of the actors like Johnny Depp and, and other famous actors and actresses as they do change. And, you know, there is no escape from that that uh, that time that will catch up with you at some point. And I think in a lot of ways, this movie does a great job discussing that and pointing it out that in the end, her only way of dealing with it was to just in some way lose a bit of her own self and consciousness and saneness to pretend that she was once again going to be back on top. And the interesting question that lies there is, for those of us that are outside of that reality, it's a little sad. It's a little disturbing. In the end, I would hope most people would feel some empathy. Um, and I think you're meant to. As she descends right. the staircase at the end, you are meant to empathize with her. And I do have to interject that. Sure, sure. I can't help but wonder, Jeff, because I know that when it comes to silent films, you've not seen a ton. Yeah. Now, the, the films that are going to be on this list are not going to be the ones that would give you the Oh shit. Sorry. Didn't mean to cuss on our podcast. Um, it wouldn't give you the language for this. Right. I, I don't know any other way to say it, but you know, you got Rudolph Valentino who was the king of overdoing his eyeballs. Yeah. And I think if you were to go back and watch some of those silent era films sure. where they were more about the, let's tell a big sweeping romantic era story, yeah. you would say, Oh, Billy Wilder told her, it's almost like you can't quit it. Right. And there's the famous line that she has in it. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Yes, yes, I did like that. That was well, well written. And so, to her, that big silver screen, and I, and I'm going to go to a musical once again. That Andrew Lloyd Webber made a version of this for the stage, and I can't remember the song, but Glenn Close was the actress who actually did it on Broadway, and she talks about that image on the screen and it yeah. flickering in the darkness. You think about these people, it really did feel like they were gods. Right. And I think when, if you have that in there, if you've seen it, so maybe do me this favor. It, it, over the time, if you see some other silent films and you're going to watch some that are absolute turds, sure, I'm sure. not going Then go back to Sunset Boulevard years later and maybe that will, it, it's almost like what we talk about with food. Sure. Maybe eventually there'll be something that opens up. And I think finally you might 
unlock that safe of what's brilliant in yeah. her performance. You know, in a lot of ways, what you're explaining to me, it can be like anything, music or art or jazz. Yeah. To the untrained ear, it can seem like just a collection of notes. Um, just like so well said in, in one of my, my favorite movie of all time, which is Amadeus, when the king tells uh, Mozart uh, that there's too many notes. You know, yes. just take a couple out. And then Mozart like shoots back like, well, tell me which ones. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's kind of the education I'm going through in some of this. And, and I, you know, again, I'll remind the kind listener and those that are, that are much more educated in film than I, these are just, these are my honest impressions of it. Um, as, as Todd has experienced and, and those of you that have joined us on this journey through the top, you know, I, I do feel it changing and evolving, so I'll continue to do so. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you my my honest, uneducated <laughs> opinion. And that's what I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I will go back and visit. And, and I do think uh, that it is uh, deservedly in in where it should be. Uh, but it like a fine wine. I may need to uh, adjust my palate to be able to hit, to taste all of the notes, so to speak, of this particular wine. That's 1950s Sunset Boulevard coming at 16. We're going to move along because we've got a few more to go. Um, this one, again, I didn't know, 1968. I would have sworn it was earlier than that. This particular director has a, a number of films on this list. Um, and one of, one of uh, a, a groundbreaking film that... Uh, uh, many say uh, after this, his next uh, film or the film that came after was uh, The Shining has elements in it. And that's in the 15th spot, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick's science fiction epic puts mankind in context between ape and space voyager. The film created a stir for special effects, the computer howl, and the de debate about the meaning of the film's final sequence. I've never hidden that I'm not a huge Stanley Kubrick film yet. I do, you know, I really like some films. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, I do love. Yeah. 2001 is probably not, it's not my favorite film, but it's one that every time I watch, I'm in awe of because it's almost everything that we've been talking about today, really, the, the language of film. Yeah. On Shining example here. There's so much imagery that tells you the story without dialogue. And then the dialogue that is used is often not in correlation to what's occurring. Um, it's, it is, is a book that is so dense. I'll put it that way. If yeah. you had that book in front of you, every time you picked it up, you'd swear that it's added 500 pages. <laughs> right. <laughs> is this book getting longer? Is it exactly. writing itself? Yes. Yeah, I felt like you wanted to say something. I uh, yeah, I just would before I forget because I am getting older. I think this is a, a beautifully shot movie. Mm -hmm. It's got Stanley Kubrick's fingerprints all over it. But I, you made me think of something when you initially kind of were giving your thoughts on it. And I'll say that, you know, so they say sometimes, you know, the, the movie didn't have a very, very uh, definitive plot, which was good because it didn't get in the way of the action. I think that, and I haven't read the book. Um, I'm going to wait till the pages finish writing themselves and then I'll read it all at once. Um, <laughs> I think this is a movie that shot so incredibly well, especially for the year that it came out, that I really think this is almost just a collection. It's a story, but it's more of a collection of just like, oh, wow. And I think what makes that evident is the last sequence where everything's just kind of th thrown out of the window and you're just on this this journey so i think it's a collection of just excellent scenes and and because it's not you know there's no groundbreaking uh you know lines or script or anything um but it is a beautiful treat for the eyes and another one where you could definitely turn maybe you could you could turn the sound off and not necessarily know what's going on but you'd like what you saw I don't disagree with that. I, I will say that this is one of those films that, again, I don't particularly like, but I find myself drawn to exploring more about it. Nice. There's a podcast recently that is doing a lot of what we're doing. They're touching on some of the great films mm. in history and what they mean, and they touched on this, and I found myself listening to that podcast twice because I was like, okay, what? What are you saying here? So I want to go back and watch it. And sometimes that's what film has to be. It's just like when, when we were both taken to museums as children. Yeah. It, if someone can kind of explain to you the history, 
<laughs> or the significance, then you're like, ah, my wife and I went to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam years and years ago, and both of us went in not as fans and emerged as just sh- shook by right. what we saw. Yeah. Because we listened to the audio thing and I th- that explained the paintings. And I think that's the same here. I think to its detriment, that probably turns a lot of people off because you come here and you're expecting something. Yeah. It starts so audaciously. Yes with the apes and it's just wow I, what am i seeing and then once again wow this is perhaps the the best example in the whole list of that we've had tons of transitions but the ape throws the the bone yeah. into the air that becomes the falling space station and a jar yeah. and a jarring change on sound on that too i do remember yeah. that where you've got he, the apes creeping and everything and then all of a sudden wham you're in yes. the space yeah and they, he uses beautiful examples of, of the soundtrack, and that, that can be what you just said, or using classical pieces of music mm. set against sites that we don't know. We, we aren't at that point yet in the evolution of, of space travel. Yeah. Uh, you can look and see how in tune Kubrick was with what he was reading, because they actually have a lot of technology that would come to pass. They have things that look like iPads. Yeah. Uh, very smart in understanding where he was taking it. This film is so influential to a number of filmmakers. Chris Nolan uh, is said to have been greatly moved. James Cameron will go on and on and on and on about how many times he said in the movie theater and watched it again and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I want to like this film. I don't. I, I guess I like it. I don't love it. I I will say this in the times when when I direct movies in my head when I think of stories, I often come back to things like there's a moment in this when the two astronauts are becoming afraid of Hal, the computer. I'm sorry, they Dave. Step into a, I'm sorry? I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> it is one of the, the most peaceful yet creepy voices you'll ever hear. Yes. But they step into, I believe it's a pod, thinking they can have a moment of isolation yes. and talk about Hal, but what they don't <laughs> know is that Hal has learned to read lips. <laughs> now, and that is a bit of trivia in that other film ca- uh, podcast I listened to about the film. That was an improv moment because the oh. other actor... Stanley Kubrick was known for doing take after take after take after and would do it to the point where this guy lost his mind and was told to leave the set and thought he had been fired. That night, Kubrick comes to his room and says, we need to talk. He's like, I've been fired, haven't I? He said, no, the scene's not working. What could we do? And as they began to talk, the actor actually Ah. came up with, it's almost like, what if Hal could read my lips? And they were like, ah. Wow. It's a great example of the director listening to the actor and saying, okay, give me what you need. And they come up with that, but beautifully executed moments. It's just, I, I've never understood where the heart of the movie yeah. is. I think I'm going to go watch this. I, I want to see it again. And, and a little uh, trivia for the kind listener. Um, for years and years and years, my mail announcement um, uh, on Outlook is uh, Hal saying, there is a message for you. Nice. Yes. I, I love it. I need to, I need to check that out and, and good points too. Um, you know, and again, it's interesting, you know, especially seeing it fresh um, again. Um, I think there would be things that, that I could add to this discussion if I had seen it, you know, time ran out and everything. But um, definitely, definitely, I think, deserves to be in its spot. And, uh, you know, love what Kubrick, you know, brought to the screen. Because, again, 1968, you know, we're talking about weightlessness. We're talking about space travel and all kinds of stuff that he did a masterful job of creating um if for the time that it was it was shot yeah with that question i th- this film i'm actually surprised it's not in the top 10 hmm. it's so revered by so many people but then that's where we now we start getting into the density of this list as yes. i scroll up here i i i look at maybe one film that it can two films maybe it could knock down a bit and right. be up higher yeah but, It's always going to be in that top group. Yeah. All right. That's 1968's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey in the 15th place. Moving up uh, and going back in the AV time machine to 1960 in the 14th spot. It's Psycho. Psycho. This is Alfred Hitchcock's film of a woman on the lam who has stolen money and makes the mistake of checking into the Bates Motel run by a man that will change her life and his mother. Hitchcock's horror film is best remembered for the shower scene and Bernard Herrmann's chilling score. Those are the notes that I have here, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw in some other things. This film, I mean, I'm going to go back to, to its inception. This is based loosely on a true serial killer Ooh. and 
uh, that has been the insert. I wish I, I'm going to have to look this up while we talk, but uh, he has been the inspiration for many others, including Buffalo Bill from Silence of Lambs. Ah, Hitchcock gets a hold of this, and somebody wrote this book, and he was like, "I want this to be my next film," because really, he, in my opinion, wanted to break out of his mold of making these these large films that he'd become known for. Right. He shot it intentionally in black and white, and. As a side note of trivia, Hitchcock was always in his films in a cameo, and he intentionally put his cameo very early in the film because he didn't want people always going, where's Hitch? Where's ah, Hitch? Where's Hitch? So he puts it in, it, yeah. gets it out of the way. What is absolutely brilliant about this film is what I talked about. It's about a woman on the run. It's It starts as a film about her stealing money so that – Imagine at the time, no one knew what the Bates Motel was. No one knew what Norman Bates was. They right. didn't have any idea. So that when she's running, we're with her. She's running. And they didn't purposely did not tell the plot of the film in the advertising. And she gets to this Bates Motel. Motel, I can't even speak. Um, and we have what David Lean, the great film director of things like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Shivago, who I've, I've mentioned before, was a fantastic filmmaker. But he commented that the most brilliant part of Psycho was the two minutes where we we as Norman Bates watch the wall when we begin to see his corruption that he's watching yes. a woman undress through the wall and it's boring it's not it's titillating from the standpoint that we're seeing him do something we know he shouldn't do but it's boring it lulls us in and we think that we're only seeing somebody be a voyeur right and instead we go to the shower scene which is we've all seen the shower scene shot with a, a silhouetted figure as it stabs Janet Lee in the shower. That shower scene went to the censors and had to be recut numerous times because they swore that they saw a nipple. They yeah. swore that <laughs> the blade hit the, uh, pierced the skin when the truth was it was none of it was in there. Yeah. It's all fast cuts, just cutting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And using uh, lore basically says they used chocolate syrup yep. in the water to make it look like blood. That even though if you'll some film historians will say that's not absolutely true, but I kind of like it. This film creates so many things that have become horror film staples over the years. Yeah, that you cannot watch this. In fact, most people who see it now will be like, I've seen this before. Well, you've seen it because they're all copying it. Yeah, and Hitch just went for broke with it, including times when we we'll, we were already turned askew because our main character is killed early in the film we don't know what to do at that point that you, you have to think of in film language the main character we, we're going to talk about star wars in a minute and that main character is not introduced until quite a bit into the movie which is already jarring imagine if you've latched onto a woman and the story of her stealing the money because she wants to be with her boyfriend on the lamb and she's killed who do we latch on to now right. do we latch on to the creepy kid who is looking through the wall right. do we latch on to her sister who's looking for or the investigator they find absolute brilliance across the board to continue to do this to us. We don't know. We are now that person that is lost, that's scared and we're scared because we don't know what to do. Right. Bernard Herman, the great film composer that created things. He, he wrote the citizen Kane script. He became uh, John Williams mentor in many ways creates complete chaos with the dissonance of that score which we've all heard that goes bam 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 yep. bam there are so many things in this that if you watch it i want you to please strip your mind away from what you've seen before and know again this is what you're seeing for the first time i'll let you speak for a minute i'm going to look up who that syrup yeah absolutely I, I don't have a whole lot in this i, re I remember seeing it uh i love the shot um Hitchcock did such a great job when he paints um, or, or creates the shot. Uh, obviously, the go-to would be, if somebody's going to look through a peephole, is the shot of them either from behind with the light from the other room kind of um, creating a, a silhouette, and you can see you know, that they're obviously you know, looking or maybe their hands are up on the wall. The other way you can do it is shoot it from the opposite side where you're seeing their eye in the hole, and that's kind of creepy. But what a beautiful shot where he takes a side angle, and so all you see is the light coming through the hole and it and it illuminating um, Bates's eye, and and again, just 
finding a masterful way of shooting something that makes an impression, right? Because either either one of those is 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 creepy, but to to have the sin, which is the the hole, and looking through uh, at someone you know in the shower, be this the point of light for the shot to be made. I think really does and communicates effectively um, the creepiness. But at the same time, uh, doing it in a matter where you know it's a it's a, it's a beautiful shot. Um, it also reminds me of a, another uh, moment in the Psycho Two film that was equally as creepy. Um, and I, I don't think this was Hitchcock, but it, it went along those lines. And there's a there's a scene in the second movie where there's a body that has been um, stored in the ice maker uh, mm-hmm. outside the. Uh, the lobby or the the front of the hotel excuse me and um i believe it's a woman that's like you know inquiring about it and bates is out there and she doesn't look at the ice but we can see from the audience that there's there's blood and i think a hand that's coming out and it's a really hot day and without looking she scoops up some of the bloodied ice and starts you know like cooling her face and everything and i remember that just you know being like oh my god you know just how (laughs) awful that would be very masterful well i know you probably found your information and before we move on i kind of wanted to know your thoughts on the sequels and and you know i don't remember them wholly than other than that shot did you enjoy them did they do it right um i think i saw the first two sequels and it's weird that you would bring that up because it wasn't maybe six months ago, some film journal that I was reading was talking about one of the sequels being an unforgotten or a forgotten masterpiece. And I don't recall which one they were talking about, but uh-huh. I remember liking them. Um, w- my family went to see them and no, those weren't Hitchcock, but it was, you know, that's sacred ground. Yeah. That film is just something that i know that sounds sick and perverse but we, we loved that film and yeah. so we went and saw him and i liked him I, I i'm gonna have to look up and see what that is and i'll tweet out which one they talk sure, about sure. yeah I'd watch it. let me interject a couple things i i think that you're absolutely right the shot of norman looking through the wall is masterfully done and i think with it what even makes it more masterful is you you're really skating on thin ice there of of betraying where you're about to go yeah if you cut to the reverse angle and we are watching Janet Lee with his eyeball peering at her, she suddenly feels in jeopardy. Right. He also feels like the aggressor at that point. Right. But instead, by showing him isolated and a very, very crudely, uh, openly torn area of the wall gone, he's almost sad. Yeah. He's isolated. He's separated from her. He could never have her. The most he can have is that. Yeah. So that when the moment then occurs, it totally plays. And, and I guess I'm going to go for spoilers here. Um, I, I'm not going to go for spoilers. I'm going to try to find a way around it. It totally plays to what the film tells us. The that reveal. She's attacked by a woman kill, killing her. Yeah. That it, it plays exactly what we need to understand at this point. Um, I'm going to jump ahead too, to one more thing that is brilliant about this film. And I do believe this was Hitchcock as well. This film was received very poorly by a number of major critics when it came out. They were saying that the master had lost his way, that he went for schlock, and it was all about gore. Um, Hitch knew that he had a problem with the marketing of it because he knew people would be upset that he was killing off his main character. Right. So they came up with the idea that the advertising is that no one would be admitted after the shocking first moments of this film. Ah, and so they put that on all the posters. And this was one of the first forays into advertising the idea that something was so shocking this couldn't occur. Right. Now, we've all seen that since. They've done that many times. But this film broke so much new ground. This film was such a landmark that my mom will still tell me that when she went to see it, that a friend of hers, they were in nursing school, and a friend of hers refused to take showers after this film because <laughs> she was convinced that someone was going to murder her in the shower. Yeah. And I think that you look, how many films are like that? This and Jaws, you know, people were afraid to go in the water. There may be a few other instances. One last thing. The man's name was Ed Ginn. I believe that's how you pronounce it. He was the model for Psycho, Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Buffalo Bills, The Silent Slams, and the character of Dr. Oliver uh i guess that's 
Threadson from the TV series uh, American Horror Story Asylum. Wow. Very disturbing gentleman, but uh, was was the inspiration behind this. So, wow, what a great film. What a stinking great film. I, <laughs> I, I showed it to my daughter, afraid it would just petrify her, but she, she ate it alive, you know, which is probably the wrong way to, to describe it. <laughs> and then you didn't take showers for a week. <laughs> That's right. Great <laughs> film, though. If you've not seen it, please treat yourself to it. And again, I, like I said, separate yourself from the horror language that you have in your brain and just know that this was the first. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, 1960s Psycho in the 14th spot. Moving up one more, we have three more films to cover today. I'm realizing we are running a little long, so what we may do is split this uh, episode up, but let's continue to 1977 in 13th spot. That's for you, Pop. Star Wars. I was really about to say Jeff, but then I realized what you're doing. Um, No film has had a greater moment in time impact on me than this film yeah. i'm going to start by saying my dad I, I think i've mentioned this before my dad took me and my sister he said we're gonna go see this film called star wars and i was like what is that yeah and he said, just imagine astronaut cowboys or something like that and i looked and i thought oh god what am i seeing now i had no idea we walked into the north park theater in dallas sat down um i i would be remiss to omit that there was a young lady that walked in wearing a do you, do you remember they i think it was almond joy candy that their their slogan was mounds of joy or something mm-hmm. like yep. that she was a rather buxom young lady and at that time buxom young ladies were known not to wear bras in the 70s and she walked in with this mounds of joy thing on and my dad just turned to me and laughed and i'll never forget that image <laughs> that it was. So the t-shirt had that on it Yes, it had it on it, and she was moving everywhere. My dad just kind of laughed at me, you know, and I was like, eh. but this film begins. And, and yes, I'm going to tell the story of what it is, but I think we all know this story. But this film begins, and, and I see that 20th Century Fox logo, mm-hmm. which as a fun bit of, of a side trivia, was the first time that they'd used the entire 20th Century Fox fanfare and yes. I think it was 20 or 30 years. Yeah. It, the subsequent main theme of Star Wars was then written in the same key so it would have a transition ah. to where it felt tied together. Yeah. So then it comes up with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and I thought, well, this doesn't sound like Cowboys in Space. Yeah. From the opening fanfare of that film to the flying words of Star Wars across the screen, as a 10-year-old boy, I was riveted. Mm-hmm. And then when that ship flies over 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 top, I didn't care what the story was anymore. Right. I was transported in a way that I didn't know film could do. So what is that story? It's a landmark science fiction fantasy about a young man, Luke Skywalker, who finds his calling as a Jedi warrior with the help of droids that land on his planet, an old wizard, and an outlaw named Han Solo as they embark on a mission to rescue a princess and save the galaxy from the dark side. It is a perfect fairy tale for the era. What's very important about to understand Star Wars is this is just post-Watergate era. It's probably actually middle of Watergate era now that I say that. It's the ramifications that our government has sold us out permeate everywhere. So he wants to re- remind us that sometimes these stories of old need to be told about sacrifice and heroic actions and trusting yourself he perfectly sets a fairy tale amidst a corrupt empire. Huh. Wonder where he's trying to tie together there. <laughs> right. As they then learn to take it upon themselves to save the galaxy. And he has, Luke has to trust himself or the force. Yes. The religion of the film over the emerging technology that's given to him. Gee, I wonder what's also happening at that era. Right. Lucas makes a perfect example of how to tell a story about your current era without saying a single thing directly about it. Um, some some hallmark things here. I mentioned before, Luke, our main character, is not introduced until I think it's 18 minutes into the film. Right. We, we use a convention that he got from Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, which is in that film, it's a couple of bumbling idiots that hold the key to the entire story. He uses droids, robots mm. that hold take us it's exactly the same thing hidden fortress is also about rescuing a princess 
So he's there's nothing new in this, but now he's put it into the space era. Right. Real, real, real quick, because um, now you're making me think about when Luke is introduced, and it's Amber Rue that's calling to Luke. Yep. Uh, so there's not even a moment where he takes the the screen like so many leads do. Right. She's calling out for him, and then I think he's he he comes running up or something, and she you know says something to him. So and, even there, it's it's muted a bit. But here's the interesting thing. It's one of the only times. It, it, so Williams uses themes in the score. Every character, to an extent, has a theme. Han Solo is the only mm-hmm. major character that doesn't have one. Right. So Luke's theme is the da 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 da. da. Well, it's one of the few times we hear the entire phrase again is when she goes Luke, Luke, and he comes over, and I believe it's a French horn that is a solo French horn. So in other words, ah. here is our heroic character without his complete orchestral representation that we've already heard nice now he's alone so that's where the brilliance of all this comes in and this is where i get to the other point i wanted to make which i said before star wars is by and large if you could turn off the dialogue and just leave the images and william's score it works beautifully yeah it's a silent film we don't need to understand anything else the images tell us what we need to have the you know, they would do this often in, in silent films. You would have someone accompanying on a, a piano or a, an organ. Yeah. You would have these repeating themes and it would tell you what you're thinking. Lucas wanted this to be exactly that. He wanted it to essentially be a silent film and it works amazingly. So this film, we all know how much it changed science. Uh, I'm sorry, special effects, how much it changed yeah. the summer movie going experiences. It took what happened with jaws and took it to 10, you know, it, yeah, it changed the landscape. You often forget how beautiful a film this first film is. It's, you know, it's vastly moving from its religious aspects. The force can be a, a parable to what we, any kind of religion you want. Uh, right. It's just, it's flawlessly executed. And I, I know I'm saying that a lot in these, these films, but we're, <laughs> we're at that point where it's right. You can't, you really can't begrudge anything it tries to do. Right. Uh, yeah, because we could talk about Star Wars forever and, and the thinking of the kind listener in their ears. Um, I'll, I'll make mine rather short. Um, this movie came along when I was five. I remember my mother reading the scrolling text to me or my father um, uh, as I had not yet mastered the art of reading and, and, and was so excited to see this film. And I, with the with running the risk of the statue of limitations, if I remember this correctly, and I'm sure my father will email me if it's not correct, but I think we had a tape audio cassette recording of the audio from the movie. I don't know how a hippie couple living in the mountains of New Mexico without running water or electricity got a hold of it, but I remember listening to this movie over and over and over again, which then led to the first debate, Life Saver or lightsaber. My parents would always correct me, Jeff, Jeff, it's a lightsaber. And I'm like, no, it's a lifesaver because, you know, getting in trouble, it saves your life. And then um, I had to ask my father about a particular part. Uh, It's when they're starting the attack on the Death Star. And again, this is from the audio tape I'm listening to. And it's the actual movie. It's not, you know, when you hear R2-D2 go, turn the page. It was the actual film, and when they're getting ready to attack the Death Star, he goes, he says, look out for those fighters, and I thought, he said, look out for those spiders, and I'm thinking, (laughs) what a turn. I mean, it's like, you know, (laughs) spiders in space, fighters, what is that? And then, of course, my father's, no, no, you have to listen to it, it's, it's, he's saying fighters. Um, Again, probably the most uh, earth-shattering childhood experience I ever had was watching this film masterfully scored. I still get chills when Han Solo says, you're all clear kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. I mean, that's just such a, it's like, wow. Uh, I've played before my favorite line where uh, Han Solo says boring conversation. Anyway, Luke, we're going to have company. There's just some moments where, you know, script and shot and music come together that really just have stayed with me. In fact, this is another one I'm going to have to watch again soon and listening to you give, you know, the, the, the run and the facts on this, this movie almost makes me sad to see where we're at today. And I don't want to get into a hole. We can save that for another podcast, but 
it started so well and so sweet and so genuine. And now you, we've reached a point where people are deleting Twitter accounts because of the passion and the anger that people have about where this franchise went. For me, as I've said repeatedly on this podcast, I love a story, and this tells a fantastic story. And with Empire and then um, Return of the Jedi, just wonderful. I think you know um, the decision to try and continue it was was not mine to make and I respect but you talk about a gem and you talk about a lot of the things that we've we've discussed on this and and, and in fact I'm surprised it's this high I would expect it to be a little lower I'm, I'm glad that's where it's at but a uh, a fantastic movie and and so happy to have have been there when it first came out and and to to have that be one of my first uh you know cinema experiences you're you're absolutely right to do what you did. If we if you had not stopped me, we might be here all day. Yeah. <laughs> so, a couple of things. Why is it this high? Because I think that what is this list about? But what film has done to influence blah 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 blah. Yeah. Star Wars might be the most perfect example of what's come before and how it 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 can be made today. He took so many ideas of the silent era. Uh, films and the serials and whatnot and put them together here yeah that one thing you said in there that i i simply cannot let go is the sweetness of this film yeah i can't find the heart of 2001 and maybe it's not meant to be found right the heart of this is so beautifully laying before you yeah and and one funny aside i know this film so well i've seen it so many times that there's an episode of the sitcom How I Met Your Mother where they're watching and it's they're watching Star Wars and it's all about that he has to show his girlfriend uh, Star Wars. She's never seen it before. Right. And in the background, they're simply playing the soundtrack. And I, I don't really like sitcoms to begin with, but all of a sudden they start playing this thing, this bit of music. And he said, see, this is this part when this and this. And I look, I pause the TV and I look at my wife and I said, no, it's not. That's <laughs> the part when they do this and this. They got the wrong cue. Ooh. That's how well I know this movie. So I need to separate myself and simply say my heart pounds for number 13. Yes, yes, mine too. Uh, that's 1977. That's the 13th spot. That is Star Wars. Uh, we are going to go to 1956. This is my one of the movies I have not seen. I'm not familiar with at all in the 12th spot. That is The Searchers. This is John Ford's la landmark saga. It's a quest to find a child abducted by the Comanches right after the Civil War. Oh, John Wayne plays an Indian-hating ex-soldier who wages an internal battle while devoting years to searching for his niece abducted during an Indian raid. Um, this is considered by many to be Ford's true masterpiece. Uh, so much so that actually the film preceding it, Star Wars, has almost a direct homage to it when Luke finds Aunt, uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Brew murdered. Ah. It is almost an exact shot of John Wayne finding the same type thing. Mm. Um, it is a dark film. A lot of people aren't going to like it. John Wayne is always John Wayne. He's even though in this he is dark and brooding, he's still John Wayne. Uh, I will I will say this: watch it. You when you see it, and especially when you see that shot I'm talking about with that Star Wars emulates. That shot has been borrowed countless times in other films this film directly influences so much in the western genre that it absolutely will always be in this top 15 and i, I again i haven't seen it so we'll just move right along as we are coming up <laughs> on uh, on 120 minutes into the podcast um that is we're going to go to 1931 i did watch this and that is the 11th spot City Lights, Charlie Chaplin. Take it away, Todd. So as Jeff Masterly said before, and I wanted that to be masterfully. I don't know if that came out, but masterfully said before, you you either look at Buster Keaton or you look at Chaplin. Yeah. I really like Buster Keaton, but Chaplin just has always spoken to me. Something about his sweetness is something I can't escape. This is a silent masterpiece that was released three years after the start of Talkies. In this classic, he plays the little tramp again who falls hopelessly in love with a blind flower seller and risks everything to gain money for her much-needed operation. This film has tons of things that you've seen Chaplin do. They're famous clips throughout. I won't even go into listening since we're so deep in this, but I will say this. The ending of this film, and, and Jeff, I know, kind of struggled not to fall asleep while watching it. Right. 
the ending of this film is one that you could put on at any time. In fact, I remember while watching the revelation of this list on TV, they showed it and I bawled. Mm. It is just so sweet. It's everything that I want a film to be, which is to transport me in because I guess I, I've said it before. I'm kind of a help, helpless romantic. Right. And I love when life can present a situation where we actually treat each other with kindness and the sweetness of this film is one that I think that so many filmmakers have taken and tried to evoke again and again. I, I, I wish that we could simply take he and Keaton and say they're, they're the two sides of the same coin and we need to appreciate both of them. I, I, I hate that so much of what they do is forgotten today on so many people. So in full transparency, I have not seen all of this film. Um, we did not make it all the way through. So um, we will finish watching it tonight uh, because the end is what uh, I hear is, is really good. Um, initially, again, um, it's like we've made so many comparisons, Beatles, Elvis, Rolling Stones. Um, I, again, felt like, you know, I could feel the... Um, the forced i want to i don't want to say that it's bad but i could feel the performance in which chaplin was giving whereas with buster it's a situation that creates a performance right he he he's on the train and doing what he's doing because he's he's trying to you know reach his goal whereas with chaplin he's the catalyst he's what's causing everything around him to change and morph and shift um not that i disliked it just a just a difference in in what i noticed uh, i look forward to seeing the rest of this and um again just having you know one total silent film under my belt i'm in no way uh qualified to make uh some hard you know some 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 uh critiques on this type of a film but I do, I do enjoy, and 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 I mean, I enjoy learning again more about this type of film, and appreciate the performances and the effort that went into creating them. So I will finish uh, City Lights tonight. Maybe we can, we'll, we'll maybe do a, maybe that'll be Jeff's judgment next week, so that uh, I can share with you and we can talk about the end. Which I, I'm, thankfully. I will not answer any texts. I will not communicate with Pop while I am in case he's going to tell me that Charlie Chaplin turns into an alien or something like that. Damn it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to offer one one quick thing in here. Sure, sure. Uh, two, two quick things. Don't just go into this watching for the end because nothing will kill the true emotion of it when you're like, okay, where is it? What are you doing? And oh, you're, yeah, you're yeah. searching for it instead of just try to let yourself be in the moment. Yes. To defend Charlie Chaplin's performance, it is very different. You know, Buster Keaton was very deadpan in much of what he does. Yes. Where Keaton, I'm sorry, where uh, Chaplin, Chaplin was considered to be the face and the heart of the, the Depression era moviegoer. He was the little tramp. He was the person barely making it like they were. Right. And so we have to remember what those days were like. We talk about that we went to the cinema to forget. Well, they went to the cinema to forget, and somehow he almost became like a superhero to them in that way because he was like them. Think of it, eating shoes to keep his belly full. Yep. It's exactly what he was, and for him to do the things he did, he, he was constantly, just like he and Keaton were constantly pushing these type of things of what they could and couldn't do, and they were both very gifted physical performers. So... Try to strip away that you're watching for the end and watch that instead and just see how much heart he brings to the screen. Wise words. And congratulations. We've made it to the top 10. <laughs> right? I always feel like playing some fanfare, but we'll just do a bell. Um, so I'm looking forward to, and just to remind the kind listener, we're going to do the, we're going to do 10 through six and then five through one when Todd's up for his visit. Um, want to thank todd i know you're exhausted you just got back from your vacation thank you for your your time this morning and doing that um invite all the kind listeners to sit down write us an email tell us what you thought tell me what i'm not seeing with sunset boulevard that maybe you saw um you can email us uh info at the other kind radio.com jeff at the other kind radio.com and todd at the other kind radio.com uh, if you do get a chance, go out and check out the uh, podcast awards. Maybe uh, nominate us. 
As always, we welcome your reviews and comments on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, also want to make sure that you guys are checking out uh, Minute of the Apes. Todd and his team are doing a masterful job putting a movie together minute by minute that maybe isn't their favorite. <laughs> so check that out. Folks, thank you so much for Todd, myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We are The Other Kind Radio. Radio.